When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And this is the aforementioned uh, Eagle One, otherwise known as Mark. Uh, Sal has managed somehow to disconnect himself from the system, so uh, let me do the introduction today. Our guest today is uh, Dr. Dmitry Gorenberg. He's an expert on security issues in the former Soviet Union, Russian military reform, uh, Russian foreign policy, and uh, ethnic politics and identity. And he's done a bunch of uh, research on decision-making processes in the senior uh, Russian leadership Russian Naval Strategy Pacific, Black Sea, Russian Maritime Defense Doctrine. He's the author of Nationalism for the Masses, Minority Ethnic Mobilization in Russian Federation, and a whole bunch of other stuff you can find online if you search for Dmitry Gorenberg. He currently works at CNA and also serves as an editor of Problems of Post-Communism and is an associate at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. And... Uh, he previously served as a director for the Association of Slavic East European and Eurasian Studies. He received his BA in International Relations from Princeton University, yay Princeton, and PhD in Political Science from Harvard University. He blogs on issues related to Russian military Russian military reform. He is a native Russian speaker. So, with that being said, and Sal seems to be back online. Welcome to Midrest, Dr. Gornberg. How are you today? Good, good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. Literally about 30 seconds before the show went, my line went dead. So uh, I'm I'm calling in uh, on my phone because my switchboard is getting goofy, but uh, that's okay. I think it'll flow along just fine anyway. But, uh, uh, Dimitri, thank you again very much for, for coming on. And uh, I wanted to kick things off today uh, because it's, sometimes you can have trouble in a daily scan, getting news of substance uh, from Russia that's outside the, you know, very American-focused news that everybody is used to seeing. But uh, everything derives from power and government, and there recently was a a big shakeup in the new year of the Russian government. Of course, President Putin is still there, but another name that most people would recognize, Dmitry Medvedev, he's out as prime minister. The the Sergei brothers for the foreign policy people, uh, Sergei Lavrov and Sergei Shogu, who's the defense minister, uh, are still in. But if you could uh, give us an overview of uh, the important things that people should keep in mind with the latest shakeup as we know it in the Russian government. Well, uh, Sal, I think that the main thing to keep in mind is that we uh, Russia is uh, or 
you know the the Putin uh, uh, regime is a slowly approaching a critical year, which is 2024, which is when uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, I guess fourth term as president, uh, but second in the current iteration, ends. And according to the Russian Constitution, uh, as you know, as it currently stands. Uh, president cannot serve more than two consecutive terms. So this, I think the shakeup in January that you mentioned was uh, sort of step one of a process of transition where they uh, are, are working on how to uh, w- how the regime will look after 2024. Uh, and so so you mentioned the government shakeup. There are also some proposed constitutional changes that were announced at the same time. Uh, and that, I think, is where a lot of, of the initial steps are being, are, are, are being kind of seeded. Uh, my sense, and, and you know, a lot of this is kind of, you know, for us Kremlin watchers, it's a little bit of guesswork as to where they're going to go with it. But my guess is that they don't have a firm... Uh, decision on how things will look after 2024. Uh, we suspect that Putin is not going to, uh, you know, retire to to a dacha somewhere, uh, but w- most likely he also will no longer be president. So what that means is how do you uh, manage uh, a transition where Putin can keep uh, control of of uh of the country and 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 the leadership while moving to some kind of new uh, position and there are you know uh one one possibility that i think is is reasonably likely is a sort of a uh a senior uh, you know sort of uh president emeritus sort of position what they call it we don't i don't know but it's kind of kind of like deng xiaoping had in China um, in, in his later years, or how, or what uh, uh, Nazarbayev now has in in Kazakhstan, where they're no longer the president, they're no longer have formal n- number one, the formal number one position, but they're still effectively in charge of um, of the country, and so the the question is how to manage that while also ensuring that let's say the formal number whoever the formal number one is the the actual president and so forth doesn't uh uh sort of uh betray the the senior leader as it was as it were so so i think that that is where a lot of the the shaping is happening now and uh, so so the um part of the the government to get back to the government shakeup itself uh medvedev has been blamed by a lot of the the the, the population for uh the relatively um anemic uh, economic growth of the recent years and and general kind of ineffectiveness he really after uh he he really was kind of you know, part of the problem with the when they uh, when Medvedev and and Putin switched roles back in 2012 and Medvedev became prime minister and Putin became president again uh, was that this was really 
um, kind of Putin in the way it was handled, Putin essentially kind of emasculated uh, Medvedev, and and that you know, he had he was really shown to have no no independent power whatsoever, and so, and so the the problem with that for for uh, Medvedev is that he he sort of became while he was running the government he also became kind of uh, a laughing stock uh, for for the population and so uh, but but Putin remained you know pro- had promised him the the prime ministership and and is famously loyal to people who are loyal to him so so he's kept he kept him on until this point and i think that the fact that he's now been moved to a effectively a kind of a semi-retired role uh suggests that this is the beginning of uh kind of a discussion within the elite of who will who will follow who will have some of those senior positions uh f- formal in in the you know, in the formal structure after 2024 well, are there just to follow along on that? Are there people that we should be keeping an eye on in the in the Russian hierarchy as it exists now that are kind of favored candidates? That or is that is that something not allowed under the Putin way of doing things? I, I, yeah, you know the people who are the the people who show you know who pop their heads up too early tend to get them chopped off. You know what I mean? Uh, so uh, I think that the most likely. Uh, you know, I can give you some names that you know are potential uh, successors, uh, but uh, the most likely is none of the above, uh, uh, because uh, I think you know, much like Putin appeared out of nowhere in 1999, right? Uh, as far as anyone who was watching, uh, you know, who were the most influential people in the Kremlin were. Uh, in the late Yeltsin period, I think something very similar is most likely going to happen uh, here, and and the person that's going to end up running things is probably not someone that we're keeping an eye on at the moment. There are you know there are a few there's uh, you know there's some young younger people like who are seen as fairly loyal and um well, i wouldn't say unambitious but you know uh maybe not looking let's, let's say unambitious in the sense that they're not looking to take putin out <laughs> uh so somebody like anton vino who's the uh, at the head of the uh, presidential administration um is is fairly influential he uh you know there is there is a question of in the in the modern Russia can somebody who's ethnically, you know, sort of not not totally Russian. He's he's of Estonian descent. Um, is, would that be acceptable? Uh, you know, much the same has been said about some uh, Sergei Shoigu, who's a defense minister uh, and is uh, of Tuvan descent, so a uh, Siberian uh, nationality. So. Has also been mentioned in the past as a as a potential successor. Although at this point he's not that much younger than Putin. Um, you know, I could I could I could probably come up with a couple other names, but I, you know, there's this new uh, new prime minister who's most likely a caretaker figure, but you never know if he turns out to be really successful, he could uh, make a name for himself. Uh, it's um, it's uh, Mishustin who comes from he was heading the. Uh, the 
tax police before he became prime minister. Yeah, it's 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 great, I guess, because I remember the, the first time many moons ago that we had you on Midrat. I think we started off saying that. Well, nobody else seems to be interested in Russia, but we still are. It was nice that the rest <laughs> of the world is, is caught up with us. Yeah. And to hear phrases like criminology and uh, Kremlin watchers come back, it, it reminds me that um, part of the challenge, I think, for uh, perhaps Americans especially, but Westerners in general, in trying to understand Russia is – Russia is not a European power. It's a Eurasian power. They're not really Western, though um, some of the – when you look at Western cultural issues, music, dance, everything else, that the Russians have such a huge presence there, they're definitely not Eastern. They have their own unique kind of Russian way of looking at things, history, cultural norms. It's not Western, not Eastern. And in many ways, that's kind of how the Russians see themselves as well. Is that accurate? Well, you know, I don't don't like to get too into these kind of cultural explanations for for difference, right? I think, you know, you could say, you could easily say, well, you know, the French are different from the the British or, or, or the Poles or the Spanish, right? So, I don't know, uh, I'm, I think it's more, rather than talking about culture, I would maybe talk about the legacies of the way Russia developed and the Soviet Union developed over, you know, a long time period. So it's kind of a, not, not culture so much as, as kind of institutional legacies, as it were, right? The, the fact that uh, Russia was was a communist uh, state with uh you know without private property and those kinds of things for 70 years had an impact on how it developed the the certainly the geography does have an impact in that it's it's just such a large country and for and the bulk of it fairly sparsely populated and that has certain implications for uh, control and how 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 the the leadership thinks that that uh, you really need a, a a strong center to keep it all together. Otherwise, you know, distant parts that are you know ten or, or whatever time zones away will will just wander off by themselves. <laughs> so um, so I think that I w- I would more focus it on on those kinds of uh, structural institutional factors rather than, than differences in culture, which to my mind often uh, the differences that we see often follow from the structure rather than the other way around. That, well, that raises uh, I'm kind of see if I can approach this the right way. <laughs> you know, you, you, you had this, uh, this, this piece you wrote on, on how Russia, it was an analysis of Russia using prospect uh, theory, and and the point was that, that among other things, they don't they don't the um, they compare the status quo against whether they are going to gain or lose something, and the way they seem to approach it or have historically approached it is that they calculate what's going to happen from a losses point of view, and from that you expand it into the Russian strategic view of the world, which, uh, you know, maximize security, maximize power, and maintain great power status. Is that 
uh, is that likely to, is there, I mean, is that is the core of, of Russian thinking that no matter who is in charge, that those three things would be of great import to them? And can you kind of discuss, here you go, I'll, I'll give you an extended thing. Let's discuss all those, and in 25 <laughs> words or less, tell us how important it is that we know about that. Um, sure, yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I think that there, those things that you mentioned are really at the at the core of uh, Russian worldviews and Russian foreign policy, not just sort of, you know, what Putin or, you know, his, uh, his foreign policy slash security team think today, but, but kind of in the longer term. Um, it's maybe, you know, not necessarily that different from how other um, major the great powers, you know, we can, I don't want to get into a discussion of, you know, is Russia a great power again or not, but, uh, but you know, the, the countries, let's say countries that think of themselves as great powers, uh, uh, often, uh, you know, uh, look at things that way. But there is, uh, but there is, I, I think a lot of the, the, those three things that you mentioned do get at the core of some of the fundamental uh, worldviews of, of uh, uh Russian leaders in foreign policy, namely that one, uh, Russia, you know, the idea that Russia is a great power needs to have a seat at the big, you know, the big table with, you know, the United States and China and any other, you know, the, maybe the EU or whatever, uh, sort of deciding how the world works and certainly, uh, you know, m m needs to have a, a larger say than, you know, some small countries that they don't think matter that much. Uh, 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 so that's, that's, that's one. And so, and so to the end, because Russia was weak for much of the nineties and early two thousands, that was seen as kind of unjust. And, and so Russia needed to get back to its rightful place as a great power. Uh, so that's one, two, there is that kind of, like I mentioned, the large, landmass kind of kind of aspect to it and there is that um kind of imperial you know imperial syndrome you know the lost empire where because russia lost all these territories when the soviet union broke up there is still some uh unwillingness to fully reconcile with that and so that's where you get at the Kind of territorial, you know, not territorial necessarily, but but desire to to have influence and to some extent control in the neighboring states, and you know, people people have called that sphere of influence. Uh, that you know, that's certainly one term for for it. But uh, but there is, you know, that's where we get a lot of the conflicts in you know places like Ukraine and Georgia and so forth. Uh, and then the third one is the history of. Uh, huge losses from past invasions, you know, particularly uh, World War II is the one that really drives thinking. And so that's, and that uh, uh, drives the desire to, if, if we're going to, you know, the kind of the thinking of, if we're going to fight, we'd rather fight uh, on, uh, on somebody else's territory rather than our own territory. So that's where there's a desire for kind of a buffer buffer states around around Russia. So those are, I think, 
that's way more than 25 words, but those are <laughs> some of the key, I think, driving forces <laughs> in, in Russian foreign policy. <laughs> It's, uh, oh, go, go ahead, Mark. You had a follow-on. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say I, I didn't mean to limit. I was joking about the twenty-five words, but oh, yeah, you I know, know, it, I know. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, no, I, I, one of the, one of the points of this this piece you wrote was that that you thought it was unlikely that that Russia would want to engage NATO over the Baltic states, and yet uh, their their stakes uh, for Ukraine uh, are much higher. Can you kind of explain why that's the case? Sure. Uh, so I think that, you know, one of the factors, I mean, there, there, there's there's a number of different directions. We could probably take too long to, to go through everything. But one key aspect I'll focus on is that uh, Russia is kind of opportunistic in this. And so, and, the, and Russia does see NATO, and particularly the United States, as a strong, uh, potentially too strong adversary and doesn't really want to get involved in, you know, any kind of major conflict with, with NATO. So to that, to, to, so to this, uh, for this reason, the Baltics, you know, the, Bal uh, the, the leaders of the Baltics, when they were driving, you know, doing anything, they, everything they could to get into NATO in, you know, in the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, were actually quite turned out to be quite prescient in that uh, by having the NATO security guarantee, they do protect themselves uh, because Russia, well, Russia can, I think, you know, certainly is, is happy to mess around with the, you know, domestic politics within those countries, and we've seen that in the past in various protests and, and various other incidents. Um, they're they're not. Uh, they're, you know, they don't want to do something that will result in a uh, war with NATO and with the United States. And so the, you know, the invasion of the Baltics to, you know, driving to Riga or whatever, uh, is they're uh, convinced for now at least that uh you know that would lead to a military response from the from the west and they don't want that whereas ukraine having not gotten into nato uh and particularly uh at a point in time in you know in 2014 when it was internally divided on which direction to go in whether to align more closely with uh, Europe and the United States, or well, both Western Europe and the United States, or with with Russia, was an, was you know turned out to be both an opportunity for Russia and also uh, a threat of a big loss because Ukraine, you know, of all the different countries that were part of the the Soviet Union that uh, that were lost, Ukraine is the most important for both. Uh, cultural ties, Ukrainian, you know, Ukraine is seen as much closer to, to Russia. There are certain, you know, the Russian state in various and, and you know, ways traces its origins back to Kiev uh, a thousand years ago. Um, and, and so, so, and there's also economic ties and, and, you know, defense industry ties, all sorts of, all sorts of ties. So the, the potential that Ukraine with the uh, removal of Yanukovych would 
you know, join, fully join a Western alliance was uh, potentially a huge loss, and Russia needed to take steps, or Russian leaders felt that they needed to take steps to um, uh, to, to, to prevent that loss, and so that was where the intervention came, and and the you know the the follow-on to that is that while Ukraine remains you know, uh, the bulk of Ukraine remains fairly hostile towards Russia because of those actions. Uh, Russia still wants to ensure that Ukraine does not actually join the Western alliances. And so if Ukraine starts taking further steps to go in that direction, we, you know, that's where I, there is the potential threat of escalation once again. Because again, and, that, and then we tie back to the other thing I was talking about, which, uh, which is that you, because you, Russian... Uh, leaders are not at all certain that, you know, say the United States would actually go and fight for Ukraine if, if, if there was some kind of conflict uh, conflict there, because there are, again, NATO isn't there, there aren't security guarantees and so forth. On the subject of Ukraine, um, April 2014, which was uh, like a month after they annexed Crimea is when we, we had the, the, I guess, flare up the insurrection in eastern Ukraine. And the BBC reports, at least, these numbers vary depending upon who you talk to, of course, but they put the deaths at, at 13,000 since then over the six years, and that's flared up recently. The recent, you, know, you look at the experience that you have in the Russian government, and then you know Ukraine bounces back and forth, and now they have President Zelensky uh, how is that relationship going with Ukraine versus Russia? Or are they still feeling each other out? I think they are. I think that, that on the whole, there's probably the Russian leadership sees uh, more potential for some kind of compromise with Zelensky than they did with Poroshenko, because Poroshenko had staked himself pretty strongly to an anti-Russia position. Uh, Zelensky uh, was elected on a much more of a, let's let's try to uh, you know let's try to make peace kind of platform, and so uh, the there there is a at least a possibility for for compromise there. At the same time, he was obviously you know very politically inexperienced coming in. So the, uh, the Russian leadership was saw that as a potential opportunity for you know how maybe we can take advantage of his inexperience, but also weren't sure of what he like what he what he actually stood for, um, and so, so so there's been kind of an extended period of initially feeling each other out and trying to make some steps towards to its compromise, but at the same time you know both sides would. I think be interested in a compromise, but neither side is interested in a compromise that gives away too much. So for, you know, in part for uh, domestic political reasons, especially on, for Zelensky, this is relevant, uh, and also for just, you know, foreign policy gains and losses. And so, so, um, uh, so from that point of view, there is uh, potential, but at the same time, you know, the most likely is that they'll they'll keep trying to negotiate, but not actually get too far. Is my guess. 
One of the uh, one of the interesting things I find with Russia is that, that they seem to specialize in using ambiguity as a as a means of getting what they want. Is is this just part of the riddle wrapped in a mystery, something in an enigma, or whatever that quote is? Or is it? I mean, is this a time honored Russian tradition? Just be as ambiguous and as confusing as possible. Well, I think it's more of a uh, you know a, a weapon of the weak. Right, like Russia is just not as strong in terms of, you know, its military, its economic power, uh, uh, its political weight in the world as, say, the United States, and increasingly as China either, uh, and uh, and so you. But what they are good at is is having, uh, especially you know, especially compared to to. United States in, in recent years is having foreign policy, having very experienced foreign policy professionals who are in their jobs for a long time, and you know that's that's one advantage of an authoritarian system, is right? These people are hanging around forever and get more and more experience in doing their jobs, and so they're uh, they're much. Uh, better at long range planning and 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 using ambiguity within that um uh, because often they feel that that's the way they can actually get what they want whereas you know a more direct approach uh is something that maybe the United States can get away with as you know as the 800 pound gorilla uh in international affairs but that wouldn't work uh for Russia uh in any kind of kind of direct manner. And we've seen, you know, we've seen a lot of successes with that. Uh with uh that kind of, you know, not just uh I mean obviously the various kind of uh election interference uh situations not just in the United States but also in Europe for many years before that uh and since uh, uh but also just the way they've uh gotten involved in uh in the Middle East, in in recent years, with Syria and then uh, Libya, and you know, and so forth, just using proxies, using uh, kind of agents of influence and that sort of thing. It's um, something that I think is effective for them because it doesn't require, you know, some of the traditional, you know, big power kind of uh, stomping around kind kinds of. Uh, uh, methods that that uh, maybe they don't have, uh, or they or they feel that they aren't, you know, they they wouldn't be able to compete with as well. Because the Venn diagram is in a perfect circle, maybe close to it, depending on how you argue it. So you always have to be careful. Uh, at least I do, uh, thinking Russian is Soviet or Soviet is Russian, so to speak. But uh, yesterday, uh, you know, we were joking about 25 words yesterday, and that clicked into my mind, 5,300 words. Yesterday was the 74th anniversary of um, Keenan's long telegram uh, that he sent in 1946, where in describing the Soviet Union and developing what eventually became containment during the Cold War, he stated, quote, the Soviet Union was impervious to the logic of reason and is highly sensitive to the logic of force, unquote. That statement kind of ties into a couple of comments we said, but how do you think maybe the long, long telegram in general, or at least that quote, has stood the test of time 
And is it still useful when trying to understand what modern Russia is doing and thinking? Um, you know, partially, I guess. The, you know, there's a big difference between Russia and the Soviet Union, and that's the lack of ideology. Um, right, the Soviet Union, in the end, was an ideological state. You know, it, I mean, it had considerations of power and all that, and certainly, you know, as it went along uh, and became a superpower, that became quite prominent. But there was underlying all of that the desire to build communism in the world and expand the reach, not just of Soviet power as, you know, for power's sake, but uh, the reach of communism to the, you know, and so that that's where you had a lot of expansion into uh, various countries that might not help in terms of power considerations, but were part of, you know, this, this ideal of expanding, expanding communism. And Russia really doesn't have that. Russia doesn't have a real ideological goal for expanding its influence other than, you know, uh, well, two, you know, the, the two flip sides of power, which is a expanding Russian power and b limiting U S power. Right. And so, um, that I think drives, uh, uh, you know, it ends up being a, uh, that difference in, in, in the absence of ideology means that how you deal with the two country, well, with with the country in different time periods, uh, changes uh, quite a bit, and that um, in the absence of ideological confrontation, it does become somewhat easier to uh, use. You know, I wouldn't say necessarily use reason in that. Oh, let's all you know come together and we can work out our differences. Not, I don't mean reason in that sense, but use reason in the sense of um come you know work if working out things to to mutual advantage or at least possible it's possible right now we are in a period where there is a sense between the United States and Russia of of heightened confrontation where things do appear to be kind of a zero sum game for both sides but i don't think that's um a necessary condition of the, of the you know that's something that that can change over time and that was certainly something we didn't see before um, 2014 and it might go away and so and uh, I mean there were certainly periods in the later Soviet time that where there was also some ability to um, uh, as ideology became less significant in the in the in Soviet calculations that there, there was also an, uh, an ability to to work out th uh, things to mutual advantage. I'm thinking in particular of the whole arms control agenda, and so uh, I think you know right now we're in a period where arms control is actually being dismantled and largely dismantled by both sides, not just by 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 one or the other. Uh, but we can see I can see uh, conditions changing down the road where that becomes uh, either in arms control again or in a, perhaps in economic cooperation where now it's no longer two different economic systems fighting it out, but actually you know, more or less the same economic system uh, where there, are, there 
come to be areas where they're can, uh, where both sides see some mutual advantage in cooperation or, or you know working out working things out at least. Well, one of the problems I think a lot of Americans have in grasping Russia these days is we don't know what to think of it. I mean, I don't, you know, we we know it's no longer the Soviet Union, but we don't know whether it's a thugocracy or a oligarchy or or exactly, you know, is there a label that that fits? You know, because what we see basically is like, uh, from where I sit, sometimes is a cult of Putin, and the rest of it is. Um, I, I really don't have a good grasp on I mean, is I know when, when the wall first came down and things opened up that a lot of the companies that I dealt with were really anxious to move into Russia and, and, and you know, make massive amounts of money and help them develop their economy and all that. But I'm not sure that that seems to have died down quite a bit. Is there an easy label or is there any reason to easily label where Russia is these days? Um, well, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, Putin does. Uh, I, I, it's it's not a totalitarian state in that sense, you know. Like I don't know, let's say North Korea or something, where it's, everything does really revolve around one guy. Um, here, there is more of a, um, uh, let's say, kind of an inner circle, maybe. And certainly, Putin is uh, uh, the 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 arbitrator and senior and and main decision maker. Uh, but he does have, you know, different interest groups within the leadership to contend with. And so, um, you know, what that means in terms of a, uh, what kind of political system it is, well, you know, it's, it, it's, it, it is, I think, uh, you know, the reason you don't come up with a good label on it is I'm not sure there is one, right? It is an authoritarian state for sure but and it, and there's certainly aspects of a kleptocracy to it because all of the people that are in senior positions have gotten quite wealthy off you know skimming off the top uh, but at the same time they're you know they're not uh stealing so much that uh there's you know that they're bankrupting the country right they're stealing you know, you know there's, uh, there's that old joke about, uh, um, you know, whether, you know, the, uh, compare, c- comparing, comparing whether, you know, to two, uh, two kind of dictators comparing, you know, their, their respective countries and one, one is stealing 100% and the other is stealing 10%. Well, they're more on the 10% side. Um, so um, that... Uh, sort of allows for continuing development and certainly a lot of Russians as a result feel that they're much better off than they were under Yeltsin for example right and so so that is one of the factors driving Putin's popularity uh the rest- restoring Russia's position in the world is certainly another factor that's that that's driving Putin's popularity so so it's it's an authoritarian regime with a certain amount of uh, of legitimacy, uh, you know, a reasonably high amount of uh, uh, of legitimacy among the population, which is what allows them to, you know, keep repression relatively targeted and relatively low. If you certainly, if you compare it to the Soviet Union, much lower. I know life is life is busy, but uh, 
the, the last post you did over at your um, Russia Mill blog post was back in November, and um, R-U-S-S-I-A-M-I-L dot WordPress dot com. I'd encourage listeners to go over there for your no- November 12th post on Russian foreign policy narratives that I believe you're involved with, with the, the Marshall Center with support from the uh, Russia yep. Strategy Initiative. Um, and you have a link there where they can get the full PDF version from the Marshall Center website. And as I was looking through it, I think it, it, it helps to keep it in the back of your head uh, when you're, you're reading things from Russia. But one thing I kind of laughed about, I want you to, to flesh out a bit, because it, it just clicked as like, this is exactly it. You see this is, you know, what about ism is something that you know, many people think is just a Twitter thing where somebody says, yeah, well, what about this? There's a response, but it actually is a Russian foreign policy narrative that they've been using. Uh, talk a bit about what about ism or anything else with this report you think the listener would, should pay attention to. Sure. Yeah. So this is, um, uh, just just a little bit of background. What, this is this is kind of a, a summary of a project we were doing for almost a year uh, at at CNA with, with with several colleagues on you know tracking uh, the, the narratives that uh, it, Russian uh, leaders in, were using when they were talking about foreign policy and relations with other states, and so uh, just what were uh, what were the key kind of, and we were tra- uh, doing this, you know, kind of on a biweekly basis, putting out summaries of just what were the key statements, what were they focusing on, and and so the report, um, or or this this particular um, summary report lists about, I think it was about ten uh, key, uh, common narratives that are used, and people can you know go look at that and 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 go through, you know, see all the different ones, uh, but to focus. Particularly on what about is, and this you know, this has a long history in in uh, uh, Russian and Soviet foreign policy, going going back a ways, where uh, there's a tendency to kind of kind of say, well, you're criticizing us for something, let's say for our human rights record or our interventions in some foreign con- some third country. Um, but you, the United States, or you, you know, the European Union, or France, or whoever, uh, do the same things, or do even worse things, right? You know, and so, so if you go back to the Soviet period, there was a long, uh, a long history of um, Soviet media and Soviet propaganda outlets talking about, you know, racial tensions in the United States. Uh, because that was a way, uh, and and particularly the uh, economic divide between uh, uh, between races in in the United States, because that was a way of deflecting attention from perhaps the low uh, you know, sort of quality of life, some of the low quality of life measures of people in the Soviet Union, and so now you have. Similar kinds of things where, you know, if Russia is criticized for having uh, uh, you know undemocratic elections, let's say, 
well, they can point to other countries. They can point to the United States and say, well, look, you guys don't do elections right either. Look at, you know, how can you how can you criticize us when you have one candidate that uh, I don't know it wins the popular vote, but a different candidate becomes president, you know, or something like that. You know, you, how can you call that democratic? Or yeah, uh, uh, or if uh, you know you you criticize us for interfering in another country's internal internal affairs, but here's um, you know your State Department officials uh, encouraging protesters in uh, you know uh, in protesting against our elections in 2012. So you guys do this. You know we're just doing the same kinds of things as you do, and so that's kind of where. Um, a lot of uh, um, the the media spin comes to say, "Hey, hey, we're not bad guys. We're just like you. we're we're doing the same kinds of things you do." And that's and so there's a common, you know, sort of trope that the Russians use in this, you know, where they talk about double standards, where you know, you you the United States officials keep criticizing us for all these things, but you guys do all this too. So you know, what right do you have to criticize us? Hmm. Um, we've talked a little bit about Russia and its sphere of influence, if you will, with uh, our, our desire for a sphere of influence in, in Europe. Let's talk a little bit about Russia in the, in the Far East, especially its relations with China and, and uh, some of the other countries out there, because they are, they're, they're an Asian power, and their biggest neighbor is uh, out there is China. So is that, is that a, a strong relationship, or are they still kind of on... Tender hooks, as they have um, been in the past. It's, it's a relationship that's been getting stronger in, in, in over time, and particularly in, in recent years. Uh, Russia, it took a while for Russia to adjust to the idea that China was now becoming more powerful than, the, than Russia. You know, there was certainly a, a long time, you know, long-term kind of feelings of superiority over China that they had to deal with before they could kind of um, uh, have a relationship where they weren't sort of stepping on each other's toes all the time, if it were, if, if you were. Uh, but um, one of the driving forces of that in recent years has been the deterioration of relations with Europe and the United States, so if you, you know it's a little bit of a, of a of a triangle, right? And so Russia can't be completely isolated. So to the extent that its partnership with, you know, let's say economic partnership in particular with some of the EU countries uh, vanished after the various sanctions and counter sanctions after 2014, they really had no choice but to get closer to China and. Since then, the various uh, policies that uh, the United States and, 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 and Europe have implemented to try to isolate Russia have uh, perhaps, perhaps, you know, in it mostly inadvertently, but have had the effect of um, driving them to have a closer relationship with China. And to the, to the extent that, that you know, in, in even more recently, the U.S. and China have had a more conflictual relationship. That then encourages, you know, China is in kind of can be kind of in a similar position where 
you know, to the extent that the Chinese-U.S. relationship is more fraught, China also looks more to Russia. Uh, so, there, they've, uh, as a result, what we've seen is uh, a closer military relationship where Russia has now, in, in recent years, sold to China weapons that uh, more advanced weapons that uh, they previously didn't uh, uh, want to sell to China because they were concerned the Chinese would kind of uh, reverse engineer them and, and then you know, sell them as their own, which they've done in the past. Uh, but now they feel like they have no choice. They've also uh, done a lot of joint exercises in some in some cases in fairly symbolic locations in the, um, uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, in the South China Sea, uh, to show that they're working more closely together. So this is, yes, this is definitely a relationship that is progressing. Uh, we saw another sign of that in, I think it was October, if I remember correctly, when uh, Putin made an announcement that uh, Russia, Russia was helping China develop an early warning system for um, for uh, missile uh, for ballistic missile uh, launches. So that's something that you would um, expect to see from uh, uh, closer partners than you know we had thought of the Russia and China in the past. So so they they are I think uh, moving closer together. I wouldn't call it you know it's not an alliance uh, uh, because they have. Some interests that converge and some that diverge, but it's maybe more, you know, conver uh, you know, sort of gradually converging, converging on a partnership of sorts. On the other side of the Eurasian landmass, the most obvious Russian military presence for the last few years has been in in Syria, and yeah, perhaps we're, you know, approaching near the the end game with the Idlib offensive which has shown an, an interesting interface where the, the the Turks have bought some Russian surface-to-air missiles that they're going to use to defend against Syrian and Russian airplanes, and now they're asking for the U.S. to bring in the Patriots. It's just a big mess. But um, how is their experience in in Syria influencing how the Russian military sees themselves and also their, their role in the world? Because this was a big step forward for them. Um, sure. Uh, yeah, this is uh, really. I mean, there's there's a foreign policy component and a military component that that are both important, right? Uh, so from the foreign policy component, they really, uh, and it's possible we've we've talked about this on past uh, in, pa in past shows, but they've really kind of inserted themselves into the Middle East in a way that's been very effective over the last five years. So they went from really having for most of the post-Soviet period, having virtually no role to play in the key issues in the Middle East, whether it's Israel-Palestine or uh, the various you know, tensions between um, Iran and Saudi Arabia and, and, and the, Iraq, you know, the whole Iraq situation, to where they are now a central player uh, and in many cases taking a more act, much more active role than even the United States in some of the key issues in in the Middle East, you know, most of the ones I just mentioned, maybe less so the Israel-Palestine, but uh, uh, but the other ones, um, and that's through a very and and at a relatively low cost, right? I mean, the the Syria intervention is 
was fairly small and contained, but it really kind of showed that they're uh, a player, you know, and, and also the effectiveness of it in turning the conflict around and helping Assad to survive and now, you know, virtually uh, completely consolidate uh, control over almost all of Syria. Uh, that that that's that's really from a foreign policy perspective been a huge success. Now on the military side, uh, it's been very effective as uh, a training ground. So you see, uh, you know, they began when it was primarily an air operation at the beginning. They were very um, active in rotating crews through so that everyone would get experience. Flying, you know, in, you know, not just kind of doing exercises or whatever, but real operations, which they hadn't had for a long time. Um, and and since then, you know, there was also a limited ground force, um, air defense, and so forth. And so, so, but you see a lot of the people who are now getting, you know, in order to get promoted within the Russian military, you really have to have at this point. Um, uh, Syria experience, with maybe with the exception of the navy, and you know, but within certainly in ground forces and air forces, uh, that's that's been the case, and they've also uh, used that operation to demonstrate the effectiveness of their equipment, uh, which has been good for for arms sales. So from that point of view, it's been even lower cost because they've kind of shifted some training costs to operation costs because instead of doing some of the exercises and so, 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 those kinds of things they've had uh they've had uh their forces actually doing real life operations and then they've recouped some of the costs with uh with arms sales as well so so it's been uh you know from the russian point of view it's been a, a big success all around of uh of the, of the former client states of of the the Soviet Union. I mean, they still have some strong ties with, with, uh, say, Vietnam, um, and 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 they have that, some other interests in in the other uh, Southeast Asian countries where they're trying to work with the uh, ASEAN and all those other organizations. Um, how much of that? I mean, in North North. I mean, Vietnam is 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 one of the uh, countries bumping up against China's uh, expansionist. Uh, area, uh, interest in the South China Sea, for example, you know, are these possible areas of friction with with Russia? Or is Russia just, you know, I, I'm I'm still I want to go back to this relationship with China a bit more because, uh, you know, they've, they've Russians have kind of opened up the Arctic to allow uh, to pump gas down to, to China, and China's got a major interest in some of those some of those plants up there. Is you know, is it is it just still a, a wheel that's in spin and there are going to be these these various uh, interest areas that may bump up against each other every now and then like South China Sea Sure, yeah so for a long time Russia, one of the reasons that Russia was really studiously trying to be neutral on some of the disputes in that region you know, the territorial disputes between say you know, China and Vietnam and a whole bunch of other countries was because they wanted to develop these rela- relationships with these Southeast Asian countries um, and what we've seen in recent years is that they've kind of inched a little bit more towards the Chinese side and that goes back to that dependence on China that I was talking about earlier 
um, they've it hasn't gone so far that they are you know no longer able to develop the, those other relationships. So that's still in place. Um, but the bulk of those relations has really been in uh, two areas. One is arms sales, and the other is energy. So which includes you know, we often think of Russia, okay, um, you know, oil, natural gas exporter. But the other thing that they export a lot is uh, uh, nuclear power plant know-how. So they're out there building uh, nuclear power plants for a whole bunch of countries. I, I can't off the top of my head remember which of the Southeast Asian ones that includes, but I know there are some uh, that they've they've uh, worked on in, in those areas, as well as, you know, the more traditional kind of helping uh in oil and gas exploration and that sort of thing, but it's it's a relationship. Those are relationships are more um, economic, you know, just pure kind of economic transactional kind of relationships. So so these kind of uh, uh, arm sales and 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 and, and uh, other economic transactions, rather than any kind of a deeper strategic partnership kind of thing, like they're trying to develop with uh, with China. One of the things I I did when we were doing a little bit of show prep here is one of my little hobbies is demographics. And and everybody remembers at the fall of the Soviet Union, there was um, just a huge uh, demographic nightmare. And what we've noticed in the last few years is after bottoming out about 2000, when you look at number of births per women, it was down to one2 uh, Russia has recently increased up to 1.75 per per female, and the USA had replacement rate, which is 2.1 back in 2008, but we've gone down to 1.8, just 0.05 above Russia. And, of course, Russia's birth rate is above China, Germany, Iran, and, uh, you know, the future belongs to those that show up. And with the way trends are going um, – if they can stabilize their population and um, that many times can translate some economic benefits. Uh, We've even seen the Russian uh, life expectancy. It peaked in uh, no shock here here at 69.46 in 1988, right before the Soviet Union imploded. But after cratering a bit, it's come back up to 71.59. Uh, respectable increases. Is that type of looking at numbers and optimism about the future, is is that something internally or externally is, is part of the conversation now where people may have assumptions based upon the late 90s, early 2000s about the demographics of Russia? That's funny. That, you know, I'm used to getting this question from pessimists, right, who are like, oh, well, pessimists <laughs> from, you know, people who think, oh, Russian – you know, uh, let's look. You know, look at the numbers. Oh, Russia, r- Russian population is going to collapse, right? So it, um, it's nice to hear it from the other side. Um, uh, I think that uh, because I usually end up having to counter the, the pessimist. Um, the the uh, it's it's it, you know it's a complex picture. There is uh, certainly there are uh, you know when you look at it in um, a comparative sense as you did. 
Russia is, I think, comparable to a lot of these other industrialized, you know, developed countries like like the United States, like like European countries, and so forth. Uh, and so, so we should see similar trends. The one difference is that Russia still has a relatively high, you know, again, com- compar- uh, comparatively speaking, uh, mortality rate among men, and pri- and 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 especially among men of sort of prime working age. And that's, you know, there's various, you know, whether that is tied to alcohol or various other, you know, at higher rates of accidents, which may also be tied to alcohol. But uh, there is this loss of, uh, and, and, and there's a fairly large gap between men and women in terms of life expectancy. Uh, but there's this loss of men in kind of prime productive years that uh, doesn't, it doesn't exist in you know most of the other countries that we that you and I have mentioned, so that is a, a problem uh, for Russia. It's not a big problem. It's not you know uh, it's not something that's going to dry you know the Russians aren't going to disappear or anything, uh, but it is something that they are concerned about. And you know if if you listen to Vladimir Putin whenever he talks about these kinds of issues he's always talking you know he's talking about we need more uh, you know better health care you know improve improve some of these mortality statistics he also talks about higher birth rates as well Um, but uh, but that you know that's all part of that that scene that there is there is a sense among the Russian leaders that they need to do even more to improve their demographics but from an from an analytical position it's kind of not that different from from the rest of the world. Well, uh, Dmitri, we've uh, taken up another hour of your valuable time. And uh, before we let you go, though, I want to ask if there's something we should be looking forward to seeing from you in the future. And and before you start answering that question, uh, thanks again for coming on with us. Thanks for having me. This is this is uh, great as always. And as far as as far as what's coming out next, I am. Finishing up another, you know, one of these policy briefs for, for through the Marshall Center. This one's going to look at uh, who have been the, influ- the 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 influential players in the in the Russian political elite over the last 20 years. So I've, I've I found some data that I, I won't go into now, but basically just tracking who uh, who have. Um, been the, the key players and some of the patterns there. So that uh, I'm hoping that will be out in the next month or so. Uh, uh, I'm also do, uh, doing some work on the on the on the Russia-China relationship uh, uh, that we've just you know we were just discussing, and I, I should should be something on that maybe a little bit later than that, but also in the next couple of months. Uh, and then in a slightly longer term, I'm starting a project on looking at where. Uh, Russian uh, uh, pri- uh, private military companies have fit into the overall kind of Russian influence game, uh, particularly in, in in Africa. So that's that's something just getting underway. So probably probably later and you know towards the end of 2020, probably see something on that. Well, you will probably own own the territory at that last item. I was thinking of a, a couple of guys I know who look at Africa. We would definitely find the, the Russian private military companies in Africa to be interesting topic. I look forward to seeing it, and uh, just to join with my co-host, it's always a pleasure, Dimitri. I appreciate you coming on today. Thanks for having me. I'll, I'll probably talk again in a year or two. <laughs> <laughs>
right? <laughs> we seem to we seem to we seem to have a pattern. <laughs> we'll 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 book you right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> hey, have a great spring, spring time, Dimitri. Thanks. You too. Take care. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for another edition of Midrats. Until next time, hope you have a great Navy day. Cheers. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.